you're about to listen to our program Eng. We don't know why, however we are grateful you chose to. We do wish to inform you that the views, opinions and overall morality, do not necessarily reflect those of the station, interview guests, sponsors or musical entities. If you should choose to continue, and we sincerely hope that you do. Just know, we tried to advise you against these actions and we are not responsible for any damage done to your sanity, morals or ideals. Thank you. Here comes the terrible siren. gentlemen and everyone in between you're listening to the cult of odd on tapdetroit.com and we have a special show for you tonight that's right there's no episode number with this one because this is a special this is a business owner special and tonight we are talking with a business owner that has made his mark in the downriver area if you're in michigan um you know the area that i'm speaking of with a fantastic sports bar we are talking with the one and only Matt Taylor. Welcome, Matt. Hey, what's up? Mr. Odd, how you doing? I'm doing good. Also in the studio with me is my boss, so I have to behave tonight. <laughs> yeah, right. The one and only Mr. Planky. Hello there. How you doing, Planky? It's good to be here. It is. I, I don't I, have to push buttons tonight. This is great. No, you just got to sit there and <laughs> you sometimes be entertaining. You push your own kind of buttons there, Chip. As we uh, funnel the animals out of the studio, uh, um, oh, we... <laughs> I know. You love Artemis. I understand. I get Artemis it. Artemis is a homie, man. I just yeah. met him. Yeah. Um, so he's actually a stray that we picked up while we were in Kentucky. And he. Yeah, I, I, I know nothing but strays at this point. Um, <laughs> but no, he's a stray we picked up in Kentucky. He's got real bad separation anxiety, but he loves almost everybody. So, um, yeah, if you come to the studio, you're going to get accosted and want loved by the dog. I'm sorry. I, I can't help it. We can't train it out of them. Anyway, so the intention of tonight is to get to know Matt Taylor and the bar and the story of how things came to be. But before we jump into that, there is one thing that I have to do tonight, and that is congratulate the winners of the featured artist spot for tonight's show. Over the past week, there has been a top 10 chart up on the Cult of Odd page on tapdetroit.com, and you can go and vote for the bands. You can listen to them. I have a whole new crop of artists coming in, and this was the first 10 that we had selected. Tonight's winners for the featured artist spot are Scott and Sabrina, Anarchy, and Haven. 
Now, you're going to hear those songs. They're going to be the first three songs, but you're going to hear the rest of the artists, the whole rest of tonight when we go to music. So you'll get to know the new artists that are coming into uh, our Cult of Odd playlist. I'm happy that everybody went out and voted. I'm happy that you guys funneled in. Remember, the charts reset tonight at midnight, and a whole new week of voting will start, so you can push your favorites into the top three spot again. Now that I have paid the bills, in a manner of speaking, oh yeah, one final update, um, because I remember somebody asked me about it. We are moving our merch shop at this point. Um, so there is going to be a little bit of a a lag. If you try to go buy merch, you're not going to be able to for a little bit. We're just moving to a different website. I've run into a couple of problems that I'm not happy with and, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an asshole. (laughs) You give me one problem. I'm gone. Fuck you. (laughs) Anyways. So new bands go vote, buy merch when you can moving on. All right, Matt. What up? How long have we known each other? It's got to be 20 years. Yeah, a couple of decades. 20 years, give or take a year or two. Yeah. We met... I think the towers were still standing when we met. Yeah. Is it our friendship that knocked them down? It might be. It's a powerful <laughs> thing. <laughs> we actually know each other because of a mutual friend who is no longer with us. That's right. Uh, we know each other because of DJ Brett, or DJ President. Uh, bow, bow, bow. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He used to be at Tap Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my God. I... I think I knew him. You probably did. Everybody knew Brett. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I must have ran into him. No, I was saying to you, uh, it, it felt somewhat like I was traveling in the past, came like, stopping up at the liquor store to grab a case of High Lives when I got here, because yeah. that would be what was going on on a Friday night, as we would all be heading to Brett's house for band practice while his dad was off, uh, you know, ballroom doing, da- doing ballroom. I think he was, you know, banging whatever, whatever girlfriend whatever. he had and staying out there, but they, we got the run of the house. That was pretty awesome. That was, yeah, the band house Fridays. was a wild, like Friday nights at the band house were always fairly wild, so it, it was uh, drinking, music, drugs, you know, pot, and all the, the capricious youth things. Yeah, it was like youth group where I met Brett, but, you know, more fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think I met Brett because I was, I, I know how, how I met Brett. I was friends with uh, a girl who was dating Jesse James. Okay. And Jesse James and Brett were good friends, and so I got kind of brought into the fold, and it was a it was a weird experience at first for the first few times because I felt out of place, and then Brett's infectious personality, uh, and that that is the best way to describe our friend Brett is an, an infectious personality. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, the first time I met Brett. I'll never forget it. I told you we met at youth group, and I, I didn't really, I wasn't raised in the church or anything. I went through a spell where I had like a Jesus freak thing, but uh, me and my buddy from Riverview, we went, I went to Riverview High School. We got invited out to this youth group that was in some pastor's like like attic room above his garage. Now in That doesn't sound sketchy at all. Yeah, that, I mean, I don't think that would have flown, <laughs> but but I remember us driving up to this house in uh, on Vivian Street in Taylor, and there's like a hundred pairs of shoes on this big wooden deck. And, you know, we were, like, walk past the shoes, take our shoes off, uh, me and my buddy go upstairs. And I see Brett, and he has these weird bongos with a tiny cymbal on it. And he's just sitting there playing the bongos with his other dude, Ryan Evans, who's got, like, an acoustic guitar. And that was, like, my first time meeting Brett. 
And I thought, like, these church people are definitely weird. <laughs> but, uh, but he had a Metallica shirt on, so that was like, all right, this guy's probably safe to at least talk to. And uh, I met him that night. We hit it off a little bit, and uh, he borrowed a CD from me. And to this day, I never got that CD back. <laughs> Stole a CD from me first day I met him. Yeah. Actually, that was kind of Brett's MO. You, you, you didn't let him borrow anything. Yeah. No. Fast forward three, four years later, I actually, uh, when I first got invited to go hang out at his house on a Friday night after my youth group days were over, uh, my buddy Bob and I, I saw his CD book up there. I stole that fucker. <laughs> that was my way of getting him back, so... Yeah, I, I learned my lesson on a couple of DVDs I let Brett borrow, and uh, I'd go back to pick him up a, a couple of days later, and he's like, man, I have no idea where I put that. And if you saw Brett's room, you would completely understand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Brett had the attention span of a squirrel with ADHD. That sounds about right. <laughs> so Yeah, and I ran in the family. I remember uh, if you ever walked, uh, I always called it the Crowpog Estates because him and his, da- his dad and uh, his uncle's own those two houses right in the corner by the what's this what's the strip club on there in Northline and Playhouse. Middle, yeah the Playhouse yep um there was just these series of sheds that were constructed out of just like panels and stuff and there was everything and Brett would always joke that that you could build a helicopter with this <laughs> <laughs> yeah I remember too the first time I met Brett's dad that that stare like what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah good old Jim driest human being I've ever met in my entire life, but a really good guy. I eventually actually won him over. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was having conversations about religion with him that actually won him over. Oh, yeah, he'll <laughs> talk about that for sure. I remember uh, Brett's dad would leave his uh, whitey tighties, his fruit of the looms on, the, on like just the doorknob of his door. I never knew what that meant, but also... Funny thing about Brett's dad, he would drink beer, not much. He'd buy a 40-ounce, and he would use it like a 2-liter, like most people do a 2-liter. <laughs> He'd pour a glass and then come back to it a couple days later. <laughs> yeah, it was a conversation about religion, and he realized I was a heathen. Yep. And uh, But I was a heathen that had my head on straight. So, like, I was passable at that point. Like, Jim was like, yeah, you're fine. Go. That sounds right. Go, go on. That sounds right. And you always knew, too, like, there were times where you could talk to him, and there were times where you couldn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most most of the time, if you said, hey, Jim, how's it going, and he didn't respond, you just kept on fucking kept on trucking going. up to Brett's room. <laughs> kept on going. Yep. Those are the days where, uh, where Grandma Cropog was still around, too. Yeah. You, so. you, I, would, I would go to Brett's house and, you know, go to the door, and uh, as Brett, you'd hear Brett playing drums in the background. You'd hear it, and she'd be like, Brett's not home! Just slam the door in your face. <laughs> Or his uncle, too, was like that a lot. Yeah, Uncle Al. Yeah. Yeah, Uncle Al. Uh, uncle didn't like all the kids hanging out all the time, either. Mm-mm. He was like a missionary, like yeah. a real missionary that went to Africa and stuff. Yeah, and he didn't cotton to us. Yeah. No, we were... <laughs> he wasn't trying to peddle anything to us other than get us out of the fucking door. Yeah, Uncle door. Al, your mission is right upstairs, bro. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> all right, so you have had um, a life. Indeed. Um, a very interesting one that has taken you down some some very interesting and dark paths. Um, now, you mentioned that you, you went through a Jesus freak phase, and of course, you know, that, that was a phase, as you said. Um, but I know you've had your struggles with uh, drugs. Oh, yeah. What happened? You know, I think you could probably trace it back to a lot of fallout from the Jesus freak phase. Um you know, I didn't go to church much growing up. I was one of those kids that just kind of knew what Christmas meant and knew what Easter meant, you know, what the holidays were about. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, we read, like, the the birth story of Jesus a couple times in Christmas. My mom was probably feeling like, hey, let's try to wholesome this up a little bit. 
But I ended up going to that youth group, and it was pretty cool because, you know, I thought that putting uh, dressing up for church was, like, it was fake because God, if God exists, he can see me while I'm taking a shit. So I don't need to pretend, like, hey, by the way, this is an interview. Like, you know what's going on. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. Uh, I got pretty involved with the church um, and kind of a cult-like personality. Uh, he actually is still a pastor, and he's made a lot of a lot of local headlines. Uh, the Pastor Jay, I think he calls himself, from that Metro Church. Okay. You know, they had uh, some issues with, like, conversion therapy. They were trying yeah. to and You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what. That man is a, is a very charismatic, manipulative person, and I went from not going to church to deciding to go to Bible college, and I was leading their worship team. I was, like, basically, like, leading the entire youth group. And me being someone who'd never even really been involved with religion or church and had no formal training as far as counseling young people, I'm 19 years old, going to school full-time, working full-time, running this whole 200-kid-like ministry, and, uh, you know, I have nobody. I I have, like, the spiritual welfare in my mind of all these human beings that literally in my belief system, if they don't believe this, are going to end up, you know, eternally burning in hell. Correct. And I had my own just normal stuff. Like, they were super big about, like, don't have premarital sex. That was huge. I remember they had this I Kiss Dating Goodbye series where you're not even supposed to hold hands because that's going to lead to you fucking. Well, yeah, probably. Yeah. But uh, end of the day, I ended up dating a girl and, you know, 18, 19-year-old kids. I mean, that were fucking hormones are crazy. We have, like, a sexual relationship, and then it becomes, like, a secret sort of thing, and it gets real weird. Long story short... I'm, like, almost ready to graduate college. I'm ready to take over the youth group. It comes out that we had had a sexual relationship. I not only get kicked off of the ministry, I basically get shamed in front of, like, all of my friends and these these young people. And I went through just a dark phase. So you were excommunicated? Pretty much. I mean, I was allowed to come back to the church. I remember coming back just feeling like I wanted to make it right and being told that my, my, my sorrow and my remorse was false attrition. I remember, you know, having that conversation. And uh, this is around the, around the time my dad passed away. Yeah. So uh, my dad was awesome. I grew up in, like, the most normal, happy, like, suburban home ever. Which is weird, because if you had a decent childhood or if you had a loving childhood, it's weird that the love bombing of the church worked on you. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't. I guess I haven't psychoanalyzed why. Or We're not here for that tonight. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe it's that whole, like, melancholy 90s suburban white kid. There you you go. know, it's the dad worked too much or whatever. I've never felt that, but... It worked. It worked well. Um, I think it's just because I was like, I was kind of weird in, in elementary school and, and weird in junior high. I moved around a little bit, so I was teased. And you know, I mean, nothing that was too bad. So well, I, I love you. That, You're still a little weird. I'm super weird. Yeah, super weird. Um, I found a group of people that thought I was awesome, and I think I fed into that more than you know, that was probably the love bombing that was socially accepted in, a, in, a, in a, like a large scale there but yeah man i went i went through darkness after that big time i watched the church uh try to make a display out of my dad's sickness when he had cancer and try to make it into a commercial about how great they were because they brought us some fucking casseroles and dinners wow you know like i remember taking my dad when he was uh going through his uh his cancer treatment and i mean you know my dad we didn't find out he had cancer so he was stage four <clears throat> and he like on thanksgiving day went down uh was in a coma till christmas day Came out, you know, came home, but he was never even remotely the same. I'm not sure if you've ever been around, like, like late-stage cancer patients, but it, it sucks. You My know? grandfather, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we go to the church, we bring him there, and there's this big standing ovation in the church, and it basically the pastor gets up there and just talks about how lucky we were that Metro was there, that the church was there for us. So, you know, I'm, I'm telling it's not to bash on the church or whatever, and there's probably lots of great people that go there. It's a giant church now. Um, but for that point in my life, it definitely fueled a darkness um 
you know, I, I split off of there. I remember my 21st birthday, I didn't drink beer. Actually, my 21st birthday was two days before the day I got kicked off and, and kicked out of the church. Um, I remember it was April where I ordered my first legal beer. I, my birthday's in January. So three months later, I went there with a couple friends to Texas Roadhouse. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to order a beer. And, and, and being, like, terrified that someone oh, yeah, from the that. church was going to walk in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, and they were going to see me, and then that was going to be like, you know, it was just going to be all this this bad talk about I ordered a Labatt Blue. Had a fine time. But, you know, that kind of, like, fueled this just fuck you rebellion in me. And I remember going to Brett's and then starting to smoke weed because I'd never really smoked weed before. And, I mean, that was a big deal from where I was at in the church. I didn't really grow up around that. And I started to sell a little bit of weed. And, you know, then I was doing the, the ecstasy rave thing like everybody else was back then. And, and uh, you know, I kind of cut it all out. Um, went back to church for a little bit. Uh, I was immediately, because it had been some years, and I think there was a there was a need there for someone to fulfill leadership in the youth position, uh, threw me right back in. You know, there was no, like, are you okay? Like, have you experienced healing from your dad? Like, obviously, you were just getting fucked up and high and, and, and like, banging chicks left and right, like, two weeks ago. Like, right. but how about we put you in charge of a Bible study? We've got you, a hole and you're a peg. Yeah, and why don't we put you right in charge of, like, young people's spiritual welfare again? So, you know, did that. Um, ended up getting a girl pregnant. Like, right as I got back, which, you know, probably the best thing in my life. My son now is, uh, he's 17. He's going to be a senior. But, I mean, like, that didn't fit well with the narrative. Actually, to kind of uh, illustrate how fucked up, like, the mindset of the leadership of that church is, I remember it was probably two months after after my son's mom and I had, had decided, like, I'd split, split it up right away because I was like, I'm going to try to do the Jesus thing. We can't have sex. We just met. Like, let's just call it. I'm on a youth retreat. Some, like somewhere up upstate, you know, like a canoe retreat or something like mm -hmm. that, and get a phone call from her, by the way, I'm pregnant. So that, like, you know, blows my whole mind up. I um tell the pastor once we get back, and he's like, well, let's not talk to anybody about this right away. I think he wanted to kind of strategize how to politically play it off and how to, how to benefit the most. He had me do, like, three sermons in front of the youth group with knowing that and that it, it contradicted all of his standards. I'll never forget too. It was like the third week and I was doing, doing like a message at this youth group. We were meeting at Mancino's and Wyandotte cause you know, hip youth groups don't go to churches. They have like rock and roll and shit. Um, and I remember that Noah's uncle walked in and was there in attendance and it was like a completely like blew me up. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't get through it. And, uh, after that, like, I tried to play by their rules for probably four or five months, and it just didn't work out. I ended up going out, getting wasted one night, and hooking up with some chick that was on, like, the youth group leadership, and then it got out. And so that was pretty much my last hurrah. Yeah. Uh, but to me, I had put so much of my worth of who I was as a person that this is the only good thing about me because that church ruled by guilt and manipulation I thought I, like, had nothing. I like that you qualified that church. <laughs> that church. It's not every church. I know. You know, I, my mom is listening today. She said my mom uh, is a very devout Christian, and, and one of the cr few Christians, I really respect her faith. I, I You know, I, 
she's awesome. She doesn't go to a lot of churches because a lot of churches are like that, but that church specifically. I mean, there's lots of good friends I have that go to churches that, that aren't like that. Well, I would like to put your mother's mind at ease. The show is called Cultivad, but it is just a podcast. Yeah. Uh, but we do, I, I will say that we do have some of the tenets of a cult where uh, where it's more along the lines of telling people that they are good enough, telling them that, that they are worth something. But the difference is we actually fucking mean it. You know, it's it's not emptiness. It's it's trying to to make you feel better about yourself without trying to get you to give me money in the process. Yeah, I mean, I love that. That's actually how I run my businesses with my staff, with everything, you know. Um, a little sidebar. I mean, we talked about how I've had staff working for me for a long time. I've tried to treat my, my, my staff like professionals, and the bar industry doesn't get that because we are. We're professionals, you know? We're, you're worth something. Dude, I've seen your posts for job listings and the, the, the rundown of everything that you're offering people, and I'm like, does he know he's a bar? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's why we were able to still to this day, you know, when COVID kind of lifted, we were able to be open like we used to be. We didn't have to lose hours. We have just always treated our people like professionals, like it's a career. Yeah. But that's that's a sidebar. Um, yeah, like I said, my entire self-worth system was built upon, upon I thought that I was going to be this, this youth pastor. I don't know if you know who Billy Graham is. Yes. I was once told by the, the pastor of that church that I was the next Billy Graham. You know what? I could see it, though. I know how charismatic you are. I know what a leading spirit you do have. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But even still, like, that's a hell of a thing to say to somebody. Yeah. Hell of a thing to say to somebody without putting the work in. I don't know. I don't want to get too off base on that because we're talking about how I got into yeah, drugs. Yeah. I wanted to Sorry. get some background. Background. I remember once that happened, um, actually, the, the pastor of the church also uh, ambitiously persuaded me that being involved in my son's life was a mistake tried to actually get involved with his mom and with his grandpa wouldn't really actually talk to the women of the house by the way would just talk to the grandpa and uh was really trying to push that she give him up for adoption because we're young and uh we're not ready and this that and the other blah 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 and i was terrified obviously my dad had just passed away uh, i had no like no man in my life that was like a role model besides this guy to give me guidance and he's telling me don't be involved with your son's life crazy you know and uh you know so she and i did not have a good go about it for the first several years of his life because of decisions that were made i'm a, I'm a man i'm gonna i'm gonna own up to the fact that i was the one ultimately that like made decisions but um but yeah like like it really spun me into a dark spot so when people would say matt's doing this I was like, fine, if you think I'm, I'm smoking weed and that's bad, I'm going to go do some coke. And I'm going to do a lot of coke. You know who I found? Good old friends from the youth group to do it with. Yeah. Found uh, lots of church people. The first time I ever did cocaine was with somebody from church. Um, and, uh, you know, then it got deeper. I actually had gotten myself, uh, after my, during my roofing career, addicted to Vicodin pretty bad. So that was something that was an undercurrent. In the back, I just fell two stories off a roof one day. Actually, another funny story. It's we're heaping on this church. Uh, it was the it was the pastor's brother I was working for. I fell two and a half stories. I finished the day of work, and I remember being told, "Don't tell them you were at work." And so I had the three hundred dollar hospital bill. I went ahead and I I ate the bullet so he didn't have to have his workman's comp all fucked up. Right. I ate the bullet. Said no, I was fucking around at home, and I fell and blah 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 blah. And I just remember asking him like, "Will you cover my hospital bill since I lied for you?" 
And he was like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not doing that. Like, you know the risk you take. So I remember going to the pastor thinking, man, like, why don't you arbitrate this since this is your brother? And him saying the same thing and being like, man, you shady motherfucker. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I got like, you know, those were those were the early days, 2000s. I got like a quadruple 90 refill of Vicodin. And so that was pretty much that. Uh, you know, then it was like I told you I was I was slanging some weed. And so I, I had this dude that would sell me like a, a whole like 90 strip of Vicodin for an ounce of weed. And that was like a weekly thing. So that was pretty heavily in my background, kind of something that was in the closet, you know, that going along with that, that didn't help. Um, I remember the the person who, from church who uh, who I did coke with for the first time and started to party with uh, party with her. She was the one that said, "You know that Vicodin's just uh, rich man's heroin," and that seemed like a good argument for me at that point. I literally I remember at one point saying, "Like, all right, fuck you, God. If you want me, I'm gonna make it hard on you." And uh, first time I did heroin was with her. We went to see uh, Walk the Line at the uh, Southland Theater or something like that. The uh, MJR, yeah. right? Yeah, MJR. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I, I don't remember any of the movie. Uh-uh. I just remember drooling on myself the entire time. But that spiraled pretty bad um, into what would be at that point, what, late 2006, 2005. Then it was around my birthday. I had moved back in with my mom. I was turning 26. And uh, the opiate problem was out of control. I was long separated from the church. Uh, it was pretty much, if you were involved in my life and cared about me, you definitely knew that I was into some drugs pretty bad. Uh, I remember my mom sitting me down and, like, now looking back, it was a whole intervention thing. You know, my the, the, our cousin John Brown is a pastor, a really good dude, actually. Uh, he came over. I never knew him. And I'm so obstinate. Most, most people that are really wrapped up in addiction – think that they're fooling the people around them. And right. Think that they can lie themselves yep. into fooling the people around them. And I remember, like, I had an answer for everything. I could explain everything. Uh, they sat me down. My Aunt Mindy and Uncle Jim sat me down, you know. And I remember my brother was, shit, he was nine years younger than me, so he was probably 16. He's the only person that believed me, which helped. You know, when you're an addict, you don't think about the people you affect because you need to feed something inside of yourself. And that's right. my addiction. And, uh... I remember uh, I got kicked out of the house, and there was this big drama night where my brother, uh, a 16-year-old, tells my like 80-year-old grandma, fuck you. <laughs> Which my grandma, like God rest her soul, was the last sweet old lady left in this world. Like the apple pie, Oof. like the nicest old lady. I heard her say shit once when she dropped a pumpkin pie on the ground and like it splattered. That was like the worst thing I ever heard her do. Um, and he says, fuck you, Grandma. Matt's not on drugs. And, you know, you fast forward a week, I had actually gotten kicked out of my mom's house. I moved in with Brett. Uh, and I was kind of just coming and going. I was working a courier job, which allowed me a lot of flexibility. I didn't have hours, per se. I had to punch in and punch out. Right. Which kind of worked perfect with, you know, where my life was. I wasn't seeing my son at all. Uh, his mom was gonna get in, was gonna get married at the time or something to some dude. And I was like, all right. And I was, I was ready to cash out. But I remember being at Brett's house, and you know I had just bought a whole bunch of heroin, and I had Vicodin in my pocket, and I had whatever all this stuff, and uh, thinking to myself, you know, this is this is going to be the last day I do this. I'm 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 done after this, and if my mom wants me to go to rehab or whatever she wants, like I can't continue to live like this because if I if I do, like I, I guess I, I had pushed myself to my limits. 
Um, it was a band practice night over when Brett and Jessica were living in Ferndale. Mm-hmm. Um, Tiny Lightning. Yeah. And uh, Missed those days. I remember I drove out to like the Bullfrog. Remember the Bullfrog yeah. on Telegraph? I don't know. It was like the only time I ever was there. It's a weird night. Um, walked in and Blade was on. Remember the scene in Blade where the blood rave is happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember like I had taken a big fat line of fucking smack in the parking lot. And I walk in and the blood rave's playing. And Like a, like a Prayer by Madonna comes on the jukebox. Still to this day... I'll play that song every now and then, and it's like my like my 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 guilty pleasure feeling like I beat death thing. Anyways, go on. I put a whole lot of drugs in my nose that night. I end up back at Brett's house in Ferndale, and the only two people left were Desi and Aria. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Desi was in the band, guitar player. I've known Desi a long time. Really good dude, James yeah. Desi. And uh, you know, now looking back, I'm sure that they saw that I was not okay. And I mean. Desi's a great dude. He, he's like, well, what's up, man? Let's hang out, blah, blah, blah. So we, I think we put Wedding Crashers on or something. I was going to watch a movie with them. I went into the bathroom, and in my mind, I remember saying, this is the last line of heroin I'm ever going to blow. Like, this is it. Fucking railed it out, did it. Next thing I know, next thing I remember, I am in a stretcher, and I'm being rolled out of Brett's front door, which anybody who knows someone in a bungalow knows that you go to the side door, yep. not the front door. So my first thought is, this isn't the door you're supposed to be in as I come back to, you know, being revived. And it's fucking January, so it's fucking cold out. I pissed myself. Um, and I realize that in the moment. And I see these, there's, there's an ambulance out there. There's cop cars. There's neighbors looking. And I hear one of the EMTs say that they gave me Narcon. And that that reverses, the, and you're yeah. telling Brett and Jessica, that reverses the effects of the, of the heroin and the opiate. And, you know, like... They wheel me into the into the ambulance. I remember like driving to the ho- the the, ho- the hospital in my uh, in the ambulance. And if there's one time in the world where people don't appreciate you ha- trying to have a sense of humor, it's when you're in their ambulance, uh, you know, because you just overdose on heroin. Yeah. And you know, me forever, me not realizing in the moment, kind of believing it was all bullshit. I remember thinking like, this is bullshit. This is like another intervention tactic. Trying to joke with those guys and them looking at me like I was a fucking piece of shit, which I was, to be honest with you. Um, Going to the hospital and, uh, you know, they bring me into a room. Cops came and, you know, I, I, I gave, like, what I had in my pocket to the, to the nurse. I was like, throw this shit away. I don't want it. And I'm just being like, well, who sold it to you? And, you know, being like, I don't know, some guy that I saw in the fucking corner somewhere. He's like, why would you protect someone? Look at where you're at. And I'm like, no, no snitch or whatever. But the worst part about that night, I mean, I, I live, is, is I remember my mom at, like, 4.30 in the morning walking into the into the hospital room and uh it was like everything i thought i was hiding from everybody i was exposed and it was incredibly humbling and she didn't say much we didn't talk much uh we drove back from the hospital in ferndale uh we, i was living with her in riverview well you know i said i got kicked out right right i remember walking in the door and uh my little brother who looked up to me like like looked up to me like a god you know looking at me and and just like with the fucking look of disgust in his face that, that he was the only one who bought my bullshit and I lied and it's being like, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I and it, it, it was, it's fucked up, you know? Yeah. Um, I'd like to say that was the end of my experience with drugs. It wasn't. Um, I never did heroin again. So that's a good thing. That was like the end of that. I think I've maybe like one drunk a night, like, taken like a two to coke like one time since then in my entire life but the Vicodin was still a problem 
Uh, I was on heavy lockdown at my mom's house. Uh, you know, I, I obviously wasn't going to do the courier job anymore. And I remember, like, as I came off of fucking, like, the opiates and I went to the withdrawal process, it wasn't as bad as in train spotting. I didn't see, like, dead babies, you know, crawling on the ceiling. But it just hurt. You, like, my legs hurt. And, like, my body hurt. Like, the flu. Mm-hmm. Like, the worst flu. Yep. Um, you know, and, and obviously, if you know anything about what opiates do, they bind to your pain receptors and they fuck up your whole emotional course. So... As emotions and all my levels start to come up, I just have these emotional extremes where I would just be super happy for a second, and then I would just be fucking weeping. I remember uh, it was like, I don't know, like the fourth year the Patriots won the Super Bowl or the third year, so I watched the playoffs. I watched every Star Trek movie that was ever made, just kind of coming out of it, just like sleeping for 15, 16 hours a day. And then uh, probably three weeks later... um. You know, and, and I think this is to, to swing back to why Brett's been such an important part of my life. And uh, this moment's why I own a bar. This moment's why I'm successful right now. You know, and I, I battled these demons down the road. I've been clean now since New Year's Eve of 2008, I want to say. Kind of lost count. So we're going on 15 years. Yeah. You know, uh, I, haven't, I haven't taken an opiate. Not, I have no desire. That, like, I can, I can tell you confidently I've kicked that addiction. Um... But I remember I was in a low, dude. I was like, who the fuck is going to want to fuck with me? You know, like I've betrayed my parents, my family. And uh, Brett was the first person who called me. And uh, he goes, yo, uh, Buffalo Wild Wings has the Royal Rumble on. You want to go watch some wrestling? <laughs> I was like, fuck yeah. Get me out of this fucking house, please. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we went and watched wrestling. It was the one way. It was the year that Rey Mysterio won right after Eddie died. Okay. And, uh, you know, he won, uh, ended up going on and doing the whole WrestleMania thing and, and won the belt. And it was a great night. And, uh, I mean, it started this, like, weird obsession with wrestling that, you know, like, we would joke five years in when I'd show pay-per-views at the bar. Like, remember when I bought a bar so we could watch wrestling? But that was kind of my reimmersion into the world, seeing that, like, you know, I still had people that believed in me. Yeah. Um, Which is important in recovery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I look back, I didn't ever go to any... 12-step programs and like that. Um, Might have made it better. Who knows? But uh, the Vicodin use started shortly again after that. I remember I had a job interview at Quicken Loans and uh, just being like, man, you know, I'd like my dude was calling, where you at? Because he's missing my income stream. And uh, <clears throat> so I had some money stashed aside. So I bought some Vicodin. First Vicodin I took after that was on my way to the interview for Quicken Loans. I remember breaking out in a sweat, which, you know, like, but I killed the interview. I got a job there. I ended up moving out to uh, Northville for a little while. Worked at Quicken for about a year, but uh, the Vicodin problem got got worse. You know, it got it got real bad. I would take two in the morning and call it my my morning coffee. Oof! And I was doing probably fifteen to twenty a day uh, over the next like year and a half. I lasted Quicken about a year and quit. Um, to be honest with you, I can make all the excuses in the world, but the the wear and tear of an addictive lifestyle like that, like I just couldn't perform at the level you need to to be like a high pressure salesperson. No, of course. Um, got evicted from my apartment in Northville. Moved back in with my mom again. Uh, my truck got repossessed out of the parking lot, which was really embarrassing because I thought it just got stolen, and I put this company wide email. And blah, 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 all this. I remember, like, someone finally responding. Yeah, that's the one I saw got repoed by the record earlier today and me being like, oh, my God. So embarrassing. I didn't last a quick much longer than that. I think it just out of humiliation. Yeah. You know, like, I just couldn't face my coworkers anymore. Um, 
I uh, moved back with my mom again. Quicken job didn't work out. And I kind of just floated around for a couple months in the summer. Um, you know, I remember it's so dumb the stuff you 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 like see that you use to justify the stuff. Watching an ep- I've never stolen really anything in my life, but I watched an episode of Malcolm in the Middle, where like Dewey or whatever steals out of fucking you know Lois's wallet money. Right. Yeah. I remember. So all of a sudden it's like oh that's normal. So I started stealing money out of my mom's wallet so I could go buy pills. I would drive down like East Side Detroit, like like East East Side, and I remember these these dudes like. This house was crazy. I remember it was just a crazy house. That's all I could say. It was everything you would think of stereotypical drug house in like a fucking real sketchy neighborhood in Detroit would be. Like mountains of lottery tickets that were spent that were just there. I don't know. Maybe in case they won one day so they could write them all off or something. I don't know. But uh, that lasted for a little bit. I ended up getting a job at, at Pizza Popolis. Um, I realized I had to do something with my life. I couldn't just live unemployed. I had a lot of pride. I owned a roofing company at one point by myself when I was 20, you know, and I remember someone being like, oh, wait, tables. And I'm like, I'm fucking too good for that. Honestly, that was my thought process at that point in time, even though I had just gotten over like a, you know, heroin overdose and I was clearly like still fucked up on drugs being like, I guess I will. I didn't want to do it downriver. I was like, I don't want to go to Olive Garden or someplace like Red Lobster that that all my people I went to school with, they're going to be like, what's going on with your life? So I went downtown one day to Detroit and uh, applied at every place by Greektown and uh, got called back the next day and started at Pizza Popolis. And uh, it, honestly, I can say that out of all the jobs I've had that I've worked, that's my favorite job I ever had. I loved waiting tables. I fell in love with the service industry like day two. I was good at it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I think the same things I really liked about about you know the church and the youth group about bringing something of richness to people's lives, you know, that smiles and people. I like that. I like giving someone an experience. Uh, I was, well, yeah, your whole job is to make sure they enjoy their night. Yeah, plus, I mean, dude, waiting tables is fucking good money. Yeah. Like cash in your hand every single day. And I think it was somewhere around um, November that I started thinking to myself. Yeah, I remember the, the thought process was, <clears throat> I have a sickness that, that I am treating the symptoms of on a daily basis. And... I need to come to a point where I'm either going to acquiesce and, and, and just submit that I'm always going to treat the sickness today and never get better tomorrow, or I'm going to allow myself to be sick for a little bit and then be better forever. I thought about it a lot, and I remember uh, I had a really good night, bought like, I don't know, like 150 Vicodin pills from that house down there and going home and thinking like, I cannot continue to do this. And I thought about my attempts to quit in the past, and I always remembered that if I ran out, it was horrible. This is the worst thing. Withdrawals were terrible. But if I prepared myself, it was a totally different, totally different deal. It's a control thing, right? So I had these 150 pills. I decided I was good. I took a couple days off work. I was going to do them over a matter of three days. <laughs> Thank God I'm alive from that. Mm. So I did pretty much all of them, except for two. I remember the last day, um, I did like, I don't know, a lot. I don't know. Too much. Thank God I'm here, like I said. And I just slept like the next day. And I kind of did my maintenance amount. And I went to work. It was New Year's Eve. I took my last, like, pill I ever took right before I got to work. And uh, I started breaking out in, like, a bad cold sweat because withdrawals started kicking because I wanted more. But I was like, fuck this. You know, I've got actually the next week off. I took the whole next week off. Um, They gave us all a champagne toast at midnight. And that was, like, that kind of got me through the shift. But... Yeah, I, I went through the withdrawal symptoms all over again, um, got past it, and uh, I remember for the first, like, year, 
year and a half maybe, I always kept two Vicodin in my pocket. And there was never a temptation to do them. But to me, it was weird. It was like, I can say no to you. It's my choice today to say no to you. You know, and I'm choosing to say no to you. I'm not having that choice taken from me. And then eventually got to the point where I, I don't even know. I flushed them or threw them out or lost them or they went to the wash. I have no idea. But that was fucking 15 years ago almost. Um, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful that I, I made it out of there. Uh, the job downtown at Pizzapopolis lasted about a year and a half, and I didn't lose it. I, I quit. Uh, my brother was working for the Buckle. You guys ever been to the Buckle? I, I've Mall? heard of it. I haven't been there. Uh, it's like where all the Luke Bryan dudes go to buy their Luke Bryan clothes or whatever. Okay. You know, like if you want a $90 pair of jeans with rhinestones on it, that's where you go. Okay. That's where everyone went to get their affliction shirts back in 2005. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretend they were an MMA fired at, at, at uh, <laughs> you know, on Friday nights. Um, so I bullshitted my way into an assistant manager job there. And uh, I learned a lot. It's actually, that was a good, good organization. They were one of the few profitable organizations in 2008 when everybody else was like getting killed because of the recession, um, they were just doing boutique luxury stuff and just doing a great job with, with sales technique. Cowboys going to cowboy. <laughs> yep. But I, I ended up getting fired from that job. Um, I was DJing. I started DJing like five nights a week uh, just as a way to pay the bills. Um, I had found out that I had a, I had a daughter uh, that, that during that time. So I was paying child support for two kids. Um, and it just didn't, I, like, my paycheck wasn't enough to cover it, so I had to do a side hustle. So I, you know, talking about my sweet grandma, she let me paint her garage and bought me a whole PA system so I could start doing DJing, which is pretty awesome. Um, but, yeah, I had, uh, I, I, like, DJed, I think, St. Patrick's Day and showed up late to work the next day, and they put me on the fast track out after that, which is fine. Uh, stayed unemployed for about four months, just DJing, kind of figuring myself out, having a good time. Um use that time to really start to have a really good relationship with my son which is good and then after that I ended up working for Comcast uh, I worked for Comcast for yeah that was the worst fucking piece of shit job I ever had uh-huh. I'll tell you what let me pause you right there um, we gotta take a commercial break and we gotta play some of the songs uh, for the, the show uh, when we come back we'll pick back up at uh, Comcast being a shitty fucking job cool I'll sit my high life no. oh I do wanna let you know we have a mutual friend in the chat room tonight and uh he wasn't aware how long we had known each other he just knew that i was pimping for a big league bruise we got uh he goes by the name of crace that's how i know him i'll say his real name after like we cut the mics but here's the thing that this is why i wanted to to bring this up first off he said uh big league bruise is a saturday night main event of bars yeah uh it's a huge compliment man and the fact that um, he said, we live the same cry. We've, we've lived the same life. This is crazy. Um, stating that uh, it's it's very inspiring. It's so relieving to listen to someone who's been where you've been and come out the other side. Maybe not quite whole, but together. Uh, he said, especially when you're trying to still piece yourself back together. Every fucking day. He said, it's almost a one-to-one parallel. The ex, the addiction, being suicidal, the family shit, it's eerie comforting and discerning so many people go through it i'm a hodgepodge of emotions right now awesome man we'll stay tuned because it gets better all right (laughs) we're gonna go to break you're going to get music from scott and sabrina you're gonna get their songs runaway you're gonna get a song from anarchy called outsider and you're gonna get a song from haven called bartender these are our three winners for this week's top 10 list make sure you check back to the cult of odd.com starting tomorrow so you can vote for the new artists
Now it's time for our Patreon shoutout. Big thanks to Seaweezy, Bryce Rogers, Justin Burnside and Zaldor of Zaldor's World Podcast for becoming a patron. Welcome to our Holy Mother and the throne she sits upon, who have joined the Cult of Odd Plus. We hope you enjoy, our long, uncut and girthy, uh, episodes until you're fully satisfied and left shaking from laughter. For everyone else, you can join our Patreon too. Just head to patreon.com forward slash cultivant. Become a patron and reap the benefits today. Tired of regular bar food and bar atmospheres? Yes! Do you long for a place that feels like home where you're treated as family and not just another customer? Yes! Yes! Then Big League Brews is the place for you. Their menu is the most extensive in all of Downriver. They have an excellent breakfast selection, and they're also well-known for their burgers and wings. But hey, if you don't want to believe just some guy on the radio, Big League Brews has been voted Best Sports Bar in Metro Detroit by Click on Detroit six years in a row. They have the friendliest staff and a wide array of cocktails and beers, 26 of them on draft, with new creations regularly. And if you're looking for work, Big League Brews offers the most competitive wages with great medical and dental and vision benefits and plenty of paid time off. So what are you waiting for? Get on over to Big League Brews, located at 20428 Ecourse Road in Taylor, Michigan. Or head to bigleaguebrews.com for more info. Big League Brews. Go beyond ordinary. Eat and drink extraordinary. Are you tired of incense that stinks? Motor City Candleworks is Metro Detroit's number one source for premium handmade incense, as well as hand sanitizer and now massage oil, with a wide array of scents inspired by Michigan cities and attractions. You're sure to find a fragrance that'll keep your love of the mitten burning all year round. Head to MotorCityCandleworks.com and order yours today. And make sure you find them on Facebook, too, for all of their upcoming sales and events. Motor City Candleworks. Michigan handmade scents that just make sense. That smell. The kind of smelly smell.
Howdy, folks. I'm Rooster, and I want to tell you about my delicious cocksicles, made from 100% pure green-fed white leghorns. Now, if you're wondering how good they really are, and don't believe me, just ask our satisfied customers. Mmm, cocksicles are cocktastic. I can't make it through my day without having at least two of them in me. My kids love drinking the juice that drips off the end. Well, there you have it. Tried and true testimonials from regular folks who love my juicy cocksicles. Check your local stores for Rooster's Original Cocksicle. And don't forget to try our other flavors. Hickory Smoke Cocksicles, Sticky Q Cocksicles, which is our own special brand of sweet barbecue flavor, and our STD special, Spicy, Tangy, and Delicious. And we are back. You're listening to The Cultivate on TapDetroit.com, and we're doing a business owner special or a business owner spotlight, however you want to say it, with the owner of Big League Brews, Matt Taylor. If you're just joining us, Matt has told us the tale of how he uh, got involved with church addiction, and we are on the path to being on the other side of it. Um, he was talking about how shitty it was to work for Comcast. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> First off, dude, your voice is soothing. Thank I want to like give you like recipes to read on the tape so I can listen to them and go to sleep at night. I got a project that's coming up that a lot of people don't know about, but uh, it's definitely going to play into that. Three eggs <laughs> separated from the yolks. Yeah, nice. baby. Comcast was fucking horrible. Holy! I've shit. worked for them. I know. I did. I wasn't. I, I still do. I wasn't one of the cool guys in a van. I think that would have at least been acceptable. I remember coming in in the Orient. I was actually uh, in the tech center. In Ann Arbor, because they didn't want to outsource all their stuff overseas, like a lot oh, of people I, do. Oh, I used to go there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so it was like a f- hour long drive for me every day. I was living in Woodhaven in South Point Square apartments on Telegraph and West, and uh, my job was to have a headset on all day and just deal with an unrestricted flow of anger. Oh yeah, mostly due to the fact that everybody else there fucking hated their life and gave the worst service ever. Literally. They had a program that you could click, like, choose your own adventures. It just told you exactly what to say. And if you just follow that, if you just follow that, you'll probably resolve most people's problems. But uh, yeah. I remember that program. I had to use it. I used to work tech support. Yeah, that could have been – it would have been nice. If they did. You know, it's funny. Funny story from the Comcast days. My first day working for Comcast – and uh, I had to bullshit myself into that job, too, because, you know, like, I remember I was dating a girl, and we had gotten engaged, and I, or we were about to get engaged, and I didn't know shit about, like, they asked me, what's HTML stand for? I'm like, I don't fucking know. I, you know, I'm like, internet. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> HTTP. That's what they asked. Yeah. And then I laughed. I was like, you know, but the thing is, why well, I want this job is because I see an opportunity for it to be a real career, and, you know, I want to I wanna, I wanna propose to my girlfriend, and I want to, you know, I want to, like, go all the way, and I see this an opportunity to finally do that. And I won them over. I plucked the heartstrings. I'd done some homework, too, so I knew about, oh, yeah. like, the history. I, I, I wowed them in other ways. Well, I'm going to pause you right there just for a second and say people that have our independent spirit about us and on our drive, we're great bullshit artists. Oh, yeah. We can sell ice to Eskimos, if that's yeah. still a PC term. Hey, if you were ever a cable guy, you're a good bullshit artist, yeah. okay? Fuck yeah. <laughs> well, and maybe the overinflated confidence in my abilities to be able to just adapt on the fly. So I was like, I'll figure it out. Um, I remember the first day we, we hit the we hit the floor, they were understaffed in the billing department. <laughs> There's a shocker. <laughs> and whatever manager was like, you know what? The tech guys can probably handle billing calls, so we're just going to make them talk to people today and uh... try to resolve these. And uh, the first call I took, 
Woman had to be in her 70s. Sweet old lady. Sounded like my, my grandma Pearl, who just passed away last summer uh, from Kentucky, you know. She's like, well, I'm calling because uh, my Comcast bill's awfully high. And I'm like, okay, well, what seems to be the problem? Well, uh, you know, there's a, the thing is, you could pull up and look at every facet of somebody's bill. You could look at their exact bill. She yep. had like a $600 Yeah, I know exactly. Bill. So I look at the bill, and she's wondering why it was so high. And there was an unbelievable amount of pornographic films that have been ordered <laughs> on this bill. So I'm in my head like, how do I explain this to her without reading the titles of these films to her? <laughs> and she's like, well, I said, well, it seems like somebody ordered a lot of pay-per-view films, miss. And she goes, oh, well, my husband did say he ordered some movies. What did he order? What was he watching? And I'm like, well, these seem to be adult themed milk movies and oh, I yeah. don't know if you want to hear the title. I can I can take it Sonny you tell me what are, what, are, what are they called and I remember the first one oh, no. the, I can see it in my head I can see the fucking title it was 12 inch black dick that was the name of the first movie and I read it and once I read it I just felt like I I don't know I like lost track of who I was and the next one was wet lesbian nurses and like <laughs> like 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 you know, stepmom like this that and you know, I get like six deep and I'm rattling off it's like that's enough that's enough okay that's enough taps out <laughs> that was probably the only good thing that happened when I worked for Comcast <laughs> My favorite thing, because uh, like I said, I work tech support. I, I worked for their home security system. It okay, was yeah. my job to, to sell the pieces and to fix it. <laughs> fix it. If, fix it. Yeah, if it broke. <laughs> and uh, it was tantamount to basically turning it off and turning it back on again. But 70% of my calls, because this was in 2009, so a lot of older folks were making the transition from a tube TV to a flat yeah. screen. And so it wasn't on the Channel 3 like it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you that are like, you know, under 30, oh. when you wanted to play, you know, Nintendo or you wanted to put on Channel your VCR, 3. you had yeah. to put it on Channel 3 to get to that. And it would inevitably be like, my Comcast is broke. Like, well, tell me more. And of course, I had to walk these wonderful elderly people. Um, you know, it's fucked up now that I always think in terms of like progression, most of these people are probably dead now because, yeah. you know, 13 years later. Um, sorry, that was a little bit morose. Whatever. Uh, yeah, and then I remember like the worst time, the, the funniest call besides the porno one. Um, <clears throat> guy calls in, and I mean, this guy like I've never been verbally assaulted so hard by someone who's never met me in my, my entire life. You fucking Comcast people are so fucking stupid. You got to be oh, yeah. born missing some chromosomes, like all this stuff. Like uh, you even get a job there, you got to be something wrong with you. All this that and the other. I'm like, oh wow. I remember saying, it really sounds like like we've done you wrong sir and uh good news is i'm gonna be the one that's gonna help you today but i just need you to ask answer some really stupid questions for me first so i can get them out of the way so we can get to the problem okay and i mean this guy like cussed me out bad i was like first and foremost his tv wasn't working he couldn't get his comcast cable box to work so i need you to go to the back of the cable box all right i'm there i need you to find the power cord all right F- found it yep i got it i need you to trace it back to the wall and make sure it's plugged in well it's not plugged in it's okay we'll, we'll plug it in <laughs> He plugs it in. Yeah. He goes, it's working now. I go, do you need anything Resolved else? Resolved in one call. And, and it's like, you got to be so stupid to work at this fucking place. Like, he cusses me out again. I'm like, it was you. It was you the whole time, you bastard. My favorite one was a call that I had. And, of course, you have to explain these things. It's part of the, the drill, part of that script, that choose-your-own-adventure thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when they call in with the problem, you have to explain 
what could be the issue, how things work and everything. I had this woman who got irate with me as I was explaining things. She was like, sir, I have a PhD. You don't need to talk down to me. And I said, ma'am, I'm not talking down to you. I, this is part of what I have to tell you in order to get to the point where I can help you. And so she started screaming and cussing at me and got her to calm down and I continued through what I needed to tell her and yet again she's like well I have a PhD I understand things that you couldn't even probably comprehend and she just kept hammering and hammering and hammering that PhD and I fixed it on the first call and she's like well thank you and I was like you're welcome ma'am I said it's wonderful that you have a PhD it's a damn shame it didn't come with a set of manners thank you for calling Comcast yeah Yeah, I feel that I feel that so that was my job there in a cubicle um, it was, it sucked. That job was just rough. And this is whatever, you know, I mean, I was, I was doing pretty good in every other aspect of my life. I was still DJing five nights a week. Actually, no, I think by the time I got to Comcast, I was just DJing, DJing two nights. I was doing karaoke at McCaffrey's in Lincoln Park. Um, <clears throat> there was a bad joke because I was at the Wheat and Rye three nights and they closed down. Then I was at Shots Up and Wyandotte and they closed down. There was a little Dublin's and they closed down. It was like the LDJ Matt curse. Oof. <laughs> well, anyways, I ended up at McCaffrey's and, uh thing about Comcast is, like I said, it's like an hour drive from where I was at. And 94, right when State Street and 23 hits, is fucking terrible in oh, yeah. rush hour. Yeah, parking uh, lot. Absolutely. <laughs> so that was my everyday, driving an hour there and back, sometimes more. And they started, because the call volume was so heavy, because they suck, um, <laughs> that True. you'd be in like hour <laughs> seven and a half of your shift. Like, I got to deal with maybe six or seven more people, and I'm out of here. And you'd be right there, and they would announce that everybody's mandatory two hours overtime, and you'd be there an extra two hours. And then you'd be at the end of that, like, well, now everyone's on a 12-hour shift. Like, that happened almost every single day. Yep. Oh. And uh, it was bad. I, uh, my buddy and I figured out this hack, because they check your metrics. Mm-hmm. We figured out a hack that there was a combo of buttons that you could press on the phone that wouldn't affect your metrics, but you could stay on your phone with dead air. And so, you know how it goes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It starts off like, we just want a minute between calls. Because these calls, they would not give you a second to Oh, no, there's no breath. You would be saying goodbye, and there's the next person, like, like ready to go. That whispers right in your ear. It was a lot. So, it starts off a couple minutes here and there, and pretty soon, half of my shift, I'm just, like, playing solitaire on the computer, you know, doing whatever on my fucking cell phone. And uh, I think probably had things worked out differently, I probably would have gotten fired. But um, it would have been June of 2010. I'd always wanted to own a bar. There was actually like a funny story where Brett and I stole a house in Wyandotte. Um, our, buddy, uh, our buddy Ian was living with his brother. And uh, we were probably 22, 21. We were young. He was living with his brother, and uh, his brother was kind of, like, not there all the time because he slept at his girlfriend's house sometimes. And our buddy Ian was like, I'm moving out. This house is paid up for two months. Here's the keys. Have fun. Ian's an asshole. Like, I haven't talked to Ian in years. If he's listening to this, I hope he's doing okay. But um, I remember we decided that we were going to throw the sickest fucking keg party ever. I think we made, like, flyers. We went out to every bar. We bought, like, four kegs. You know, and I mean, this is back in 2002 where people still drank every night of the week. Mm-hmm. Like, young people partied like that. They weren't all smoking legal weed and chilling at home and on the metaverse, whatever people fucking do these days. I like my legal weed. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, uh, I'll i never forget, it was like night three. And it was just a rager that never ended. 
and uh, I'm on the deck entertaining guests. And uh, I remember Brett comes up and goes, yo, there's someone here that says this is his house, and he's fucking pissed. And I remember, like, stopping, assessing the situation, being like, all right, bring him here. <laughs> so he walks this guy in there, and it's Ian's brother, who was supposed to not live there anymore, who was supposed to be gone. What the fuck is this, man? Like, I've been at work. I've come home for a, for a long day. There's all these people. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I can tell you're really upset right now, and I think in your situation I would be too. But here's the problem. I was told that you don't live here anymore. So we've been kind of throwing these parties. You've obviously had a long day. You probably need a drink. How about this? You let us continue to throw the party. You can drink out of the keg for free, you and your friends. I mean, dude, I'm in his house. I'm fucking in his house. Hey. I remember him looking me up and I going, for real? <laughs> I used to ask him. I was-, I was like, hey, get this guy a couple cups, however many he wants, whatever he needs. You get him. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that night me and Brett were standing on the on the deck looking at the bonfire going in the background, looking at the house full of people having a good time. And Brett, I think, said to me, I might have said to him, I like the version where Brett said to me, but I know one of us said, someone's going to give us a bar one day. And, you know, fast forward, I'm at Comcast. Comcast sucks dick so hard. You know, I'm, I, I, I'm like driving in the winter, this, that, and the other. And it was June. And the owner of McCaffrey's, real good dude, real good friend of mine, uh, Ted Zach, he, uh, he's actually working with me on a project that we'll talk about uh, a little bit later yep. about what's kind of coming up next. He's going to be our GC. Uh, him, we would just sit there and talk because, you know, he, like me, had split up with his son's mom and loved his son more than anything in the world and gone through all the, like, difficulties of trying to navigate, you know, 2007 friend of the court, which wasn't as friendly to the dad as it is today. Uh, thank God they've kind of changed, and it seems like a lot more of my friends get 50-50 time now, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Um, I would talk about how I always wanted to own a bar, and we would talk about ideas and all this stuff. And he came to me one day. And said, yo, I don't know what your financial situation is. Which, by the way, I had like a $1,000 and a rubber band and a sock in my drawer. That was my financial situation. That was my rainy day fund. <laughs> that was the most money I'd ever had at one time that wasn't just being blown on bullshit. You know what I right. mean? Right. And uh, he goes, but the old tax lounge is for sale. And, you know, I never went to tax on Ecorus Road. My Riverview party mine didn't go to Ecorus Road. I couldn't even envision it. But he said, basically, these guys bought it. They call it Stool Pigeons. And... They have a contentious relationship between, like, the two owners, and they owe some money in back taxes, and they're trying to get out. And uh, I think it was, like, $35,000 was what I had to come up with. And he said, if you're interested, I'll loan you ten grand of that, interest-free for six months, and uh, you just figure out the rest. And, bro, like... So now you only have 25000 you got to figure out. Yeah, which, you know, I had 1000 in my drawer. That's 24000 You might as well have told me at that point in time, oh, only $25 million. You yeah. Know what I mean? That was an inconceivable number, but... I did always want to own a bar. I love the bar. In a lot of ways, and I know that, you know, it might seem whatever because I talk about my past with addiction. I found the community I always wanted that never was there at the church and the bar. Just meaning you sit with people who are getting off work, you know, you're doing yeah. life together, laughing, all this, that, and the other. So I was like, dude, that sounds fucking great. Um, say no more. What's the saying? My dad always used to tell me growing up that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Uh, if anything, I'd prepared of what it was like to know what I like out of a bar. Uh, the opportunity was clearly there. So I just, I fucking went, man. Um, my mom, I know, uh, when my dad passed, he passed, uh, you know, at that point, like five, six years beforehand, had gotten some money for insurance, and uh, that was, like, my only hope. And I was like, I think I could, I, I got to sell my mom into this somehow to, to loan me this money to buy this bar, because I think this is, like, I know I can do this. I know I can get out of this stupid fucking job that I hate. 
Um, I know that I can finally, you know, hopefully like not give half of my check to child support and not have enough, you know what I mean? I can finally right. turn things around for myself. And uh, so I had to sell my mom, which was a tough sell because if you guys are following the timeline, it was uh, January of 2008, December 31st, the last time I had done an opiate pill. And it was 11 months before that when I was laying in a stretcher for a heroin overdose. So that's fresh. Yeah. Um, my brother was still fresh on the betrayal of that. I remember thinking to myself, well, my mom and my brother are really close. So if I'm going to talk my mom into it, I'm going to have to talk to my 16-year-old brother into it. Um, so I take him to Stool Pigeons one day. And uh, Stool Pigeons was interesting. You know, uh, it had like these bright orange pool tables. And, I remember seeing the photos of what Big League Brews used to look yeah. like. I mean, it was just fresh off the smoking ban, and they were still smoking in there. And I mean, like, it wasn't what you would consider a place. Rough. If you look at it now and, and then, yeah. it's way different. Uh, actually, funny story. The first time I walked into, in, into Stool Pigeons, I had never heard of it. No idea. I didn't know what the R&R was down the street. The only bar I'd been to was the old Kiefer's, because my buddy Cheyenne Goff used to play... Uh, Solo performances. Oh, there. I know Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. Cheyenne's fucking awesome. He's dude. an awesome. He's dude. the songbird of Down River. That guy. Is, yeah, he yeah. can sing. Man. Absolutely. Um, so I walk into the first night after he proposed this idea. This is before I talked to my mom. Before any of that, when I was still thinking, is this something I want to do? And literally, they had six TVs in the entire place, and they were all linked to one source, and all of them had hardcore dick sucking pornography on. What the fuck? <laughs> like, literally. And I'm the only person in the bar. I sit down. I, it's five, six minutes. I, and, and the bartender. Was, they must have had that Comcast package. The bartender <laughs> was making out with her boyfriend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, The bartender was making out with her boyfriend behind the bar. Like, And it was hot and heavy. And clearly, I was interrupting whatever their plans were for the night. And uh, she finally comes down. She goes, what do you want? And I'm like, what's on special? She goes, we don't got specials. I was like, all right, just give me a meal or light. Throws a Miller light down. She goes, "You mind if you watch Playboy?" I'm like, "That's fucking Playboy." <laughs> like, there's Playboy. Like, that looks like shit's changed. Like, Playboy's awesome now. <laughs> but uh, I'm like, "No, you guys do whatever you want," you know. And then you know, a couple minutes later, I remember uh, a couple walks in and sits down at a booth because there used to be booths in there. Uh, I think that the old owner used to be at Applebee's more than he would be at his own bar, the Applebee's on Cross Road. And when they remodeled, they gave him all the old booths. They gave him these weird chandeliers that had clowns on them. Mm. It was it was a weird spot. There was this there was this uh, this breezeway back then that like I'd catch people like horrible things happening. I mean, <laughs> wonderful things for them. But right. Wonderful, <laughs> things. wonderful things for them. Um, twenty twenty nine and two for fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I remember them sitting down and they order a drink and they put the drink down and then she realizes that there's like just foul shit on the screen. She goes, what the fuck type of place you take me to? <laughs> and the guy goes, baby, I've been here once before. I don't know. And, and he just walked out. That was it. I sat there that night. There was a, there was a, a motorcycle helmet on the bar top that said, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And I'm like, these fucking guys like don't get it. Like they like, this is like not a place of welcoming. This is this horrible. And uh, thinking, like, why did he even, why did my friend that I thought cared about me even bring me into a place like this? But then I kind of had this shift of thought and said, you know, there's no way in hell I could fuck this up worse than this. Right. And, I mean, that was kind of it. And I started thinking, I was like, you know, what's this area not have? They don't have a sports bar. It's like, I don't like the whole, like, classic idea of a sports bar being someplace where there's, like, Chicks all dressed in referee shirts, you know, peddling their ass for whatever your tips on your wings and your shitty domestic beer is. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, no, a place where people can come and watch the games 
and and just fucking have fun. And I started looking around, thinking, let's put TVs up here. And, uh, you know, uh, there was the, the bread bar down the road, halftime. They had the 95-cent burgers. I'm like, well, they're the Burger Kings, so let's just do good wings. You know, that was my thought process going into it. And it started to come alive. So I brought my brother there. Uh probably like two three days later was there hardcore porn on the tv no it was daytime so i don't think they were they were doing that quite yet uh there were two dudes sitting at the bar and i got to know them uh gino and bob and between gino and bob they had a full set of fingers (laughs) (laughs) um you know and everyone's smoking and whatever we ordered a burger it took like 45 minutes for a frozen burger patty to come out and my brother is like i'm talking he's like why'd you take me here bro I'm like, I got to talk to you about something. I have a business. And he goes, stop. If you're going to ask me to bless you asking money from mom, this fucking conversation's over right now. I was like, fine, fair. I'm buying your burger. Let's go shoot some pool. Let's just, you know, whatever. And I, 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 I hypothetically pitched him how cool it would be if things were different at the place. And he's 16. His only real experiences with bars at that point was when I first started DJing, picking me up drunk from a... Uh, I was drunk from Little Dublin because I didn't want to drive home back in, I don't know, whatever year it was, 2007, and and uh, just seeing these drunk, sloppy girls at 2 o'clock in the morning. And like, mm. he had a bad impression of bars. So the whole thing like stunk to hell for him. But that explains some stuff. Right? <laughs> I get it now. Yeah. So so I remember, I, I'm like, let's go play a game of pool. And if you know the setup of BLBs, you got... The one room, it's like a dining room. Mm-hmm. And anybody who goes in for their first time thinks that they're looking into a mirror. Because originally, the building in 1941, when it was built, was just one hallway. Yeah. It was at one side. Uh, and then there was a real estate agency called the Alpine Realty that was like at the end of what the strip is that has BLBs. The owner, Alpine, eventually bought, uh, it was a dairy mart back then, uh, turned into the Alpine Lounge, made it a bar. And then like the 60s or 70s, he combined both buildings into a strip. Um, so there's like that extra room. And so we walk around to the extra room where the pool table is, where the bright neon orange Tennessee volunteers, uh, pool table was, and we rack it. And, uh, the song, um, your love by the outfield came on. You guys know the song. Mm-hmm. It's a good song. Yeah. You know, Josie's on a vacation. For yeah. <laughs> you know, like he just wanted to sing. Folks. Yeah. yeah the fucking, the, I'm trying to set the scene, man. The, you know, the smoke billowing in the air. shouldn't be the cue ball breaks. Every ball goes in the, in the holes. It's fantastic. And my brother goes, actually, I kind of see this like to the beat of that song. It's like, I could see the TVs right there and what that would look like. And I could see this. And he became a believer, you know, we didn't have a name at that point. I just had an idea. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I was like, I just want to own a bar. I wanted to own a bar forever. It's time to own a bar. I got an opportunity. Let's fucking own a bar. So uh, he walks away from that meeting, and we go and we pitch my mom. And uh, I, he, my mom wouldn't listen to it for a second. I gave my pitch, and Zach had my back. He was like, Mom, this is a good idea. You know, I I bullshitted that interview. I was like, Mom, there's 15,000 houses within one and a half. I didn't know those demographics. Right. It seemed good. <laughs> You were surrounded by houses. That was the day you learned numbers are bullshit. Yeah, they didn't tell me that the Kino pays the rent, and I'm like, the Kino pays the rent? That sounds like a good talking point to bring up. You know, like, I can do this better. They're watching porno. I'm not going to watch porno. It's going to be great. Um, So we get through this meeting, and my mom's like, well, here's the thing. You know, I don't have any certainty of any income coming in the future. So if I'm going to do this, you need to talk your grandpa into it. And he's going to have to be willing to help me if I can't, if you fail. And I need help with this. And I'm at that point, I was like, my grandpa's not a drinker. My grandma's definitely not a drinker. 
you know, like, he, I've, I've never known him to really go to bars. I mean, my grandpa used to go to a, get barbers occasionally, but he's also the most worrisome, risk-adverse person I ever met in my entire life. I'm like, well, I got my work cut out for me. Yeah. So I'm like, all right. I mean, I'm not going to say no. So we do this whole thing where we invite my grandma and grandpa over. And uh, I remember us sitting in the kitchen. And, like, Zach's in my corner. My mom's coyly in my corner at this point. Like, I've, I've convinced them. And uh, I gave my grandpa the whole pitch. My grandpa's probably 83 years old at this point. Uh, awesome, man. Um, you know, once my dad passed, I mean, that was my dad. Uh, he was a principal in Detroit School District. Uh, I mean, he was there like a like a principal in other schools during the race riots. Like, my grandpa saw some No bullshit. Shit. Smartest dude ever. Most competitive shit-talking person ever. You know, never, he'll tell you, never lost a game of checkers in his entire life. I'm three years old, and he'd beat me and talk shit to me after he beat me playing checkers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, Roy Brown was, was a bad man. He was awesome. Uh, you know, like a, a senior Olympic gold medalist. He was a captain of the universe. At least as far as he told it, maybe someone's going to Google this and bullshit. Don't tell me. I don't want the illusion popped. But, but as far as he told it, he was a captain of the Wayne State tennis team, the only time the tennis team ever beat University of Michigan, and they beat him every year. That's his story. He was an awesome tennis player, and you listen to him talk, he probably could have been pro if that was a thing back in 1945 or whatever. Right. I don't know if it was. Um, but anyways, I gave my grandpa this whole pitch. Tell him about, you know, we're going to be a sports bar and this, that, and the other, and, and, and everything. I'm pitching him hard, and I'm like, I need this money, though, because I don't have it, you know, but I believe that I can make it back. I believe I'm going to be a success. You know, I've seen what it's like. You've seen, you know I've seen failure, and you know I'm better than that, and I know I'm better than that, and this is my opportunity. And I remember, like, finishing the pitch, and the room was fucking quiet. And my grandma was looking at my grandpa. My mom, my brother was looking at my grandpa. And he sits there, like, looking at me with this deadpan. I had no idea what he was about to say. I'll never forget this. And uh, this moment is so big for me in my life. He looked up and said, if anybody can do it, Matthew can. That's what he said to me. Damn. That's good. Fucking awesome, man. What a vote of confidence. And uh, we worked out the details. You know, if things failed, then then I got you. No problem. Uh, Go get it. Which is awesome, you know. Which is funny because uh, my grandparents believed in me so much with this crazy endeavor. We don't have any entrepreneurs in our family. You know, my grandpa was a teacher. My uncle's a teacher. You know, like like my uncle Jim, like 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 he's he does an awesome job working for Carmanos. Like I don't have like business owners in the family. It's completely new for us. We get together at my uncle Tom and Aunt Cheryl's in Dearborn, and we're sitting there. And I didn't know my grandma was going to just drop the bomb. I remember like. Everyone's gathered around a circle. Grandma's like, hey, Matthew has an announcement for everybody. Matthew, tell him the good news. And I wasn't ready for any of that. <laughs> I'm like, how do these people fucking go to bars? You know, they know what I've been through. Yeah. So I'm like, well, you know, coyly I tell them, I'm going to buy a bar. And, you know, I'm going to own a bar. And they all look at me like I just sh- took a shit in the rug in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, that that's that's pretty much where it started. And to me at that point, like, and I think this is so important. Anytime you put your neck on the line and you really go after something, if you don't believe in it so much that failure isn't even part of your part of your your your, your plan, like don't do it. If it's not a fuck yes, it's a no. Failure wasn't an option. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, uh, that was June. We signed probably the closing documents in July. I got the keys August second. We were open August third. Um. You know, I mean, my first interviews I did in McCaffrey's because they were nice enough out of Craigslist. Uh, I'd never been a bartender. Well, you know, I made some drinks at Pizza Popolis, but I'd never been a bartender. I'd never worked in the kitchen. This has this kitchen. 
Um, I'd never run a like a business like that where you need to do numbers and, and you know I, I was completely new so I didn't know about labor I didn't know PNL I didn't know scheduling I didn't know dude we here's how how much I knew I was gonna make it and how little I knew we opened day one and I didn't have prices for any of our products mm. I just had a bartender that was starting at like nine o'clock in the morning I had everybody get together on the night when I got the keys all the staff and, and I was like free booze let's just talk. Give me your ideas. We didn't have a menu. <laughs> I didn't even think about a menu at that point. Zach and I made the menu at Gordon Food Service shopping for shit together the second day we were open. Yeah. You know, I was like, let's just get this fucking thing going. And uh, I remember, like, Jimmy, my manager, who's still to this day my general manager. At that time, he was just a bartender. Um, he's been with me since day one. And the funny story about Jimmy is I didn't want to hire him. When my friend Jen Johnson, who worked with I, – I knew her from the Wheat and Rice Outgate, and I knew her from, uh, from McCaffrey's. Was like my buddy Jimmy. He's got a following, you know. He used to be the manager at Gleason's, and in my head, I was like, "That's where that fucking guy got shot." I don't want someone that was at Gleason's, and you know, I'm still in the mindset that you got to be a you know a woman to be a bartender because that was definitely 2000s bartenders were all right. chicks, you know, women. Sorry, I don't mean to be yeah. <laughs> chauvinistic, um, but I ended up hiring him because she insisted. Not he didn't really want to work with me either, but he was working at Alvin's downtown, which is closed now, which you know they weren't busy, so we. Started working together. I remember the first day him being like, I'm going to go ahead and set these prices for you. This is what all this shit should cost. And uh, you know, I mean, talk about luck. Jimmy just happened to always be a very honest person. Jimmy always, there was nothing shady about him that was looking out to, you know, to get over on somebody. So right. I can honestly say without him in the beginning, I don't know if we would have made it. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of the fact that 12 years later, he's our GM, you know, and, uh, we're talking about like venturing into business ventures together as like ownership partners, you know, which is so fucking cool. But yeah, we started, we opened that first day. Um, I remember we all got drunk the night before and I slept on the stage. There was cosmic bowling carpet in there, by the way. I don't know. They must have just taken it out of the back of a bowling alley or something. He's like getting like. boosts from fucking Applebee's, yeah. and yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And uh, there was this stage back there that that um, you know was like all dilapidated and shit, and and I fell asleep on the stage with 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 like a couple of the staff members that were going to work the next day. Um, no, actually, I remember that that night standing on the bar, and you know they always used to call it my "I Have a Dream" speech. And I was like, I've dreamed of this day, you know, forever. I don't know that if we're going to be busy. I don't know if we're going to be slow. I don't know if, you know, like, if I have no idea what to expect. I can't be prettier than Buffalo Wild Wings. I can't be prettier than, than you know, Old Chicago, which was like the other place you get craft beer in 2010 besides the Oak. Mm-hmm. You know, I cannot beat them on that. But what I can beat them on is the way we treat people when they walk in the door and the way they feel when they leave. I said, and I believe... And I remember thinking, like, I, the wheat in my Southgate, that was my bar. The roof leaked. The bathrooms didn't work. The air conditioning didn't work. place was, you know, the, the fucking cook would piss himself, like, halfway through his shift, drunk, like, passed out. But, I mean, it was busy all the time because mm-hmm. the staff was great. Everybody had a blast when they walked in there. And I remember, uh, funny enough, now looking back, uh, now looking back, I remember thinking in my head about jerseys, which Bruligans, you know, my, my second bar that my brother and I own, Brooligans used to be a bar called Jersey's. And I DJ there a couple times when it first opened. I thought to myself when I first walked in, wow, beautiful. You know, clean, brand new TVs. It looks like someone condensed Buffalo Wild Wings, a little bar. But they never really, they never really hit. But that 
that whole how you feel when you leave factor was never there. So I just told him, I said, this day, I promise you this. If you give a shit about everybody that walks in the store, and if we stick to our mission that we're here to put smiles on people's faces with everybody that walks in here, we will grow, we will succeed, you will make money, and, and that's it. And we'll worry about, about pretty in the place up later. We'll worry about all that later. And I mean, I don't know. It seemed like a good line, you know, like <laughs> pulling, but I believed it. And to this day, uh, in 12 years, 12 years, and what are we going into October? 12 years and three months, except for COVID, we've never had a month of loss compared to the year prior. 12 years. That's amazing. Unprecedented in business. I'm going to pause you there because we have to go to our next break, but I do want to say one thing. One, first, if you're listening uh, after the fact, uh, you're listening to us on any of the podcast platforms, you're listening to us on YouTube, this is it for you. Unless you go sign up for the Patreon or you join us Friday nights at 8 p.m. live, this is it. This is all you get. 